Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On, the podcast that brings together business leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts covering a range of topics. I'm Nicholas Barton, founder and CEO of the Barton Partnership. We're an award-winning executive recruitment and consulting solutions firm, providing permanent search and independent consulting services across strategy, sustainability, and M&A, data and analytics, and transformation and change. Hello, and welcome to the Barton Partnerships Women in Leadership podcast series. I'm Simran Panesar, leading our independent consulting and interim efforts across our industrials, energy and services practices. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Paula Cousins. Paula is the Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer at Weir Group. Prior to Weir, she held a number of strategy, commercial and engineering leadership roles with INEOS, BP, McKinsey & Company, ExxonMobil and Unilever. Paula, hi. Welcome to our Women in Leadership podcast series. It's um, great to have you on today and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Could you start by sharing a bit about your background and your career story to date? Of course, yeah, I'd love to. I always liked maths and sciences in my early teens and and actually thought that I wanted to be a forensic scientist. I think I probably watched too many crime dramas uh, at that stage. But my older brother offered me some really good advice. And that was that maybe studying engineering would offer me some more choices. Uh, he also introduced me to the concept of engineering scholarships, that opportunity to get both experience and financial independence. My brother at that time was in uni. He was in a full grant and full housing allowance for students. And But he had that foresight to know that when I came just a few years later behind him, I was going to be in a different financial situation. So they were both really great pieces of advice. And I was hugely fortunate to, as a result of that, go in and explore and secure an engineering scholarship from Unilever to study chemical engineering at Strathclyde University. And I've, I have to say, I've never regretted that decision for a day. After university, I moved to the south coast of England. I joined ExxonMobil's graduate development programme. And at that point, it combined the usual graduate opportunities with a four-year programme at London Business School. And that really intrigued me because I really loved engineering, but I also really wanted to see what, what business was all about. And I particularly loved commercial and strategy modules. And that was when I really started to think about as well as engineering, what happened when you combined engineering with commercial and, and strategic skills. This is where another piece, you'll see a bit of a theme coming through, another piece of advice after speaking to one of my bosses, after my boss at the time, after one of those modules, is he said, listen, if you know where you want to go next, ask for it. Uh, and his view that it's much easier to for a manager to succession plan their team if they know what you actually want. So I thought, okay, I will. So I asked politely for my next role to be in, in Exxon's trading department. And six months later, I moved to be in London to be their oil trading analyst. I absolutely loved that role. And again, I am a bit of a fidget. So after about 18 months, I started considering an MBA. But I was really pondering it, you know, because they're expensive. I think we were just about to buy a house, myself and my husband. But I really wanted to get those business-related skills alongside my engineering background and at that point, a family friend gave me another great piece of advice, which was to look into management consulting. It was a dot-com bubble at the time, and all the MBAs were off building their own startups. So at the time, McKinsey were starting to recruit sector-based experience with client knowledge. And this gave me the perfect opportunity to do what I saw as 
an MBA by apprenticeship almost to gain new skills firsthand and to go and see inside the doors of lots of different companies rather than go to business school. I would say my McKinsey years were without a doubt one of the most mind expanding times of my working life. I met some amazing people. I loved consultancy, but I missed that little bit. I'm not a full completer finisher, but I definitely like getting into execution mode and and seeing whether all the things that we'd spent all this time on were actually being executed behind clients' doors. So at that point, I moved to BP and actually moved to execute a, a, a project that I'd been working for. McKinsey moved over to the client to execute a trading-related strategy. I stayed with BP for over a decade in a variety of roles, moved back to Scotland when we had our first daughter and picked up loads of financial and strategy skills along the way. And that was when, in 2015, I moved to Weir. We, at the time, had an oil and gas sector. We've sold it a few years ago now, so we're, we're a mining pure play now, a technology provider into mining. So I've been here since 2015. It's great to actually hear how, well, your journey as a whole and how you've used those kind of engineering skills and taken them to where you are today. So you mentioned that you joined the Weir Group in, in 2015 and in 2020 you were appointed their Chief Strategy and Sustainability Officer. Would you be able to talk a little bit about your current role and sort of following on from that, what sustainability means to the Weir Group? I think I've got the best job in the world. I would, talk, <laughs> I would like to say that I've got three hats in my role and they're, they all are the things that I really care about. So one is strategy, the second is sustainability, and the third is longer horizon technology. That trio of hats was very intentional. The combination of strategy and sustainability came first because John Stanton, our CEO, and I decided from very from day one that sustainability just can't be an initiative for Weir. To be successful and really drive material change, it has to be core to our strategy. And then when you combine into that the third hat of technology, that's because as a mining-focused products and solutions provider, the biggest impact that we can have is through our technology in our customers' hands. And that's why Weir's purpose is to enable the sustainable and efficient delivery of the natural resources essential to create a better future for the world. So to give you a little bit more, your your second question was, you know, what does sustainability mean to Weir? We've got four, we've got a sustainability roadmap and it's got four main priorities. The first one's championing zero harm. Safety is our number one priority here at Weir. And I can genuinely say it's the place that I felt that more than anywhere else that I've worked in my entire life. We want Weir to be a zero harm organisation, a place where everyone goes home safely to their families every single day. Um, But as well as physical safety, it's about mental health and well-being uh, of our people. That's equally critical. The second component is what we term nurturing our unique culture. That's all about being a place where people are inspired by the purpose that I talked about, by what we do, and where they feel motivated and empowered to do the best work of their lives. Of course, inclusion and diversity and equity is a really big part of that. We want people from all backgrounds, from all genders and ethnicities to feel welcome and for our employee population to reflect the communities in which we operate. We operate in 50-odd countries around the world. The third component is reducing our footprint. This is all about the environmental footprint of our own facilities. Whilst it's small overall, the most energy we use is in our manufacturing operations, particularly our 11 foundries. 
where we use electricity to melt metal as part of a casting process. We make big pieces of industrial equipment that go out to the, the mining industry. To address our own footprint, we've set ambitious targets um, that are currently being invalidated by SPTI, and that's to deliver a 30% absolute reduction in our scope one and two emissions by 2030. And last but not least, the fourth of our main priorities is what we term creating sustainable solutions. This part of the sustainability roadmap is of particular strategic importance to Weir because 97% of our total emissions comes from not our own facilities, but our products in use in our customers' sites. Our products are used in the most energy intensive parts of the mine, which are the load haul cycle at the front of the process and, and communication, the crushing process in the middle. So we've got this compelling shared goal with our customers to really reduce that footprint. The mining industry as a whole uses about 5 to 6% of the world's energy. And so a real big challenge to go after that. And to tackle that, that requires our customers to move to low carbon energy supplies, but also for us to provide them with newer, improved, sustainable technologies. So it's a win-win partnership quite an interesting and exciting journey to be a part of. I mean, you briefly touched upon it, but what kind of led you to shift your career towards a focus on sustainability? Yeah, I've always been interested in sustainability. It's only when I look back in it that I realise that it's also often been a subcomponent of various roles that I've had. But it was only in 2019 that I, uh, 2018, sorry, that I got the opportunity to make a bigger shift it was a bit of just one of those serendipitous moments, really. I think I was at a leadership conference and I made an observation to John Stanton, our CEO, about seeing sustainability as more of an opportunity than a threat to Weir. Um, there was a lot of conversations going on in the outside world at the time about reporting burden. And I just made this observation that I really thought that for, for us, it was more of an opportunity. And after the conference, one conversation led to another and before I knew it, you gave me the opportunity to build our first sustainability strategy. It's been a huge journey since 2018 as I've built the team and the strategy. And it's it's probably the thing I've had the most personal drive for in my career to date. And it comes to that point that I said earlier about having a compelling shared goal with our customers to make mining more sustainable. That means our, our sustainability strategy and our business strategy are 100% aligned. Not many organisations can say that. There's huge potential to make a material difference in an industry that really needs to change before the end of this decade. You briefly mentioned it there that the mining industry probably hasn't historically has the best reputation as a sustainability focused sector. I mean, granted, some steps are starting to be taken now. I mean, how how do you kind of see that changing and align with Weir Group's goals? I absolutely agree. You can't get away from the fact that the mining sector does not have the greenest of reputations, but the world needs metals. They're essential to everyday life. And the demand for metals is set to increase as the world needs significantly more metals, such as copper, nickel and lithium, to deliver the transition to net zero. Just to give you an example, electric vehicle needs four times as much copper as traditional petrol cars. And while solar and wind-generated power needs more than double the amount of copper versus conventional sources. So the requirement for more metals going forward is, is not in question and the need for those to underpin the decarbonisation agenda. However, and this is where the tension comes in, right, to be able to achieve this and for the mining industry to have the environmental and social licence to operate 
it needs to become smart, it needs to become efficient, and it, it really needs to be sustainable. So to be sustainable, the mining industry needs to reposition itself to attract new talent, to be able to gain investment and to overcome the scepticism regarding its role in delivering net zero. And this is where suppliers like we have a key role to play. This is what makes it really exciting is that we can provide the technology and expertise to reduce the industry's footprint and help improve its reputation alongside doing the same for our own operations. The mining sector has historically been really conservative at adopting new technologies, and that's simply due to the scale of operations and, and the cost of downtime. But we can see that visibly changing. And in the next decade, the mining industry really does need to scale up and clean up at the same time. And our customers are telling us very clearly that they need technology and process innovation to enable that. I didn't realise how integral the mining industry would be in the transition to net zero. I wasn't aware of the sheer kind of quantities of, of copper needed for electric vehicles and, and so forth. So a bit of an ed- education piece for, for me as well. Now, I'd be quite keen to talk about women in STEM. I know this is something that you're very passionate about, something that we've spoken about before. In your early career, you worked as an engineer, a sector that I think still remains fairly male dominated. Would you be able to share a couple of insights perhaps into strategies for attracting but also retaining women in typically male dominated sectors? Yeah, of course. And I'll say this is, I always hesitate about answering these questions because it's something I feel a bit conflicted about when I, and I do repeatedly get asked this question as, as you say, I've always worked in a male dominated sectors It really wasn't that unusual early in my career to be the only female in the meeting. Less so now, but certainly earlier on in my career. But I personally, my personal experiences is I genuinely don't feel I've ever been treated any different from my male counterparts. Now, maybe that partly comes from having a dad who didn't treat me any different from my brother. I've got, you know, lifelong male friends from university. I did a male dominated degree. I've got both male and female bosses who've always supported and developed me without exception. But as I've got further into my career, I've really realised just what a privilege that is and how many other women have had vastly different experiences from me. And if you take my personal experiences completely out of it, the numbers do speak for themselves. So women only make up around 16% of all engineers globally. So that needs to get better. And if we want the best minds solving the world's biggest engineering challenges that I've just talked about, that needs diversity of thought, of which gender is one significant component. I'd say for WEIR, retaining is probably less of an issue. For us, it's more about attracting women into the mining industry is probably the broader challenge. And I think there's two real priorities that can help with that challenge. And one is around STEM and and one is around role models. For STEM, we need to start young. We just need to have more women and and girls coming into the pipeline. And if girls don't make the right subject choices early enough for engineering to be an option for them, you you cut off that pipeline right at the beginning. We run a programme in partnership with the University of Strathclyde called We're Wise, and that's specifically for girls of that age, just at the point that they're starting to make their subject choices. And its intent is to raise awareness of the range of career paths that studying subjects like maths and physics can unlock, but and, and ultimately inspire young female students to become the next generation of engineers. 
And as an engineer and a parent of two teenage daughters, you'll understand why that's something I'm particularly passionate about, the We Are Wise programme. It, it really brings to life what engineering looks and feels like and makes it accessible to young female students from all backgrounds. The other focus area has got to be role models. You know, women need to see people that they associate with. I really like the I Look Like an Engineer campaign. It, it's had its fair share of supporters and detractors over the year, but I personally like the intent of what it's aiming to do is breaking stereotypes of what engineers look like and, and seeing something that people can relate to, be that gender, be it race, be it in ethnicity, all forms of diversity, really. Here at Weir, we've got a, fe- a female chair, I'm delighted to say, in the, in the first time in our 151 now year history. Barbara Jeremiah is our, our chair, which is fantastic. We've got over 40% female representation on our board. We've got female foundry managers. We've got female machine operators. We've got women in all sorts of roles, which have traditionally have been entirely male roles. So that's fabulous to see. We've also got the Global Weir Women's Network. That's an employee-led group that brings together women from all across Weir. So I think that role model part's really important. STEM's really important, but we need to continue to do more because, frankly, 17% representation just needs to get better. It sounds like you've got some great initiatives running at Weir and and. To be honest, I I kind of wish I had something like that when I was at school. It was definitely just the lack of the knowledge of what those career paths could offer. I really enjoyed maths and science, but I actually think I was basically told to avoid those subjects. And yeah, it's not it's not really something looking back that is 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 what you really want to hear, I think. So yeah, great to hear that you've got some of those initiatives running within the business. And I suppose as a parent, how do you balance the pressures of kind of work and home? And and I suppose, how can employers better support their people with both caring and leadership responsibilities? I think if you'd asked that question a, a decade or so ago, maybe, or maybe even less, to be honest, it would be more about women. But I think it is parents. I think men are, are looking for that balance now as well. I think I'd start with saying, and from my personal experience, I don't I always get it right. I don't think anybody does. I can only talk to my personal circumstances for what's worked for me. I've got two teenage daughters. We're a dual career family and we've got no family living locally. So for my husband and I, that's inevitably meant lots of juggling, lots of planning and ultimately, you know, lots of acceptance when it doesn't quite come together. But even with all that planning, sometimes, you know, not joking, sometimes we still need to resort to rock, paper, scissors to decide who has to change their work plans. Uh, you know, who he, who needs to ask for a senior meeting to be moved? Who needs to change their travel plans so that just always had a, our commitment, our personal commitment is that one of us would always be there for our girls. So sometimes it does come down to rock, paper, scissors. And I think for me personally, I opted very early to be really honest about what my red lines are and I and kept doing so as because they change over time. At different stages in your life, those red lines are different. But that flexibility really does need to be two ways. So I've always strived to consider what are the trade-offs and accepting that there might be certain implications to where my red lines are, but be clear about that. You're making a, a conscious choice about them. And my experience is that actually, once you set those clear red lines, they tend to limit you less than you think they might if you're open about them. And again, that's just my personal experience. I know that's not been the case for everyone, but since I've been a parent, without exception, I've had always had hugely supportive bosses that have 
trusted me to deliver and given me the flexibility to manage my own family balance. And that includes my current boss, our CEO, John Stanton. I can honestly say I probably wouldn't have accepted this role on the group exec until my daughters were both older and at university in my mind about when I would be ready to do a group exec role. And I was really honest with John at the time of saying, listen, I'm really honoured to be asked, um, you know, but actually I've worked so hard to keep this balance for so long, except that I might not be able to do this now and it might be a bit early. And she said, no, it's fine. We'll make it work. You've told me what you, you know, where your bounds are. You told me how important it is to you. We'll, we'll make that work. And he, and he stayed true to that in the time that I've been in the group exec. So I think bringing that back to the employers, for me, it's three things. And I, and I do come back to think, I think this is for all employees, not just for women. Number one's about flexibility. So give ma- give maximum flexibility where it's possible. In some things, it, you just can't be flexible. There are some situations or some times or some roles where there just isn't room for flexibility. Where you can give flexibility, maximise it. The second thing is about trust. I firmly believe in setting policies on the basis that you can trust people. Deal with the outliers, abuse that trust, but assume that the masses won't. And then lastly, I'd just say it is about listening. Everybody's circumstances are different. Everybody has their own different red lines and they can change overnight. So I would encourage managers to encourage their people to be honest about their red lines and figure out which of them you can help them stick to. Some of them you won't be able to. Some of them just are removable, but you will be able to help them stick to some of them. And sometimes it's the most simple things that can make a huge difference. So flexibility, trust and and listen. Thank you for sharing. And I think your situation is a great example and success story for maybe women in similar situations where they're maybe doubting that this is possible. Um, That's great. Thank you so much for sharing. And I suppose final question would be, what advice would you give to the next generation of women, you know, starting out in either their studies or careers in engineering? I think for girls, considering engineering is that earlier stage, I think my biggest piece of advice would say don't overthink it. You know, I would have said to the younger you, if you like math and science and problem solving, I genuinely can't think of a better subject to study that will give you the breadth of choices of career. And it was that, you know, it's my brother that really pointed that out to me. You know, I I wish someone had been there to to say that to you, you know, to actually encourage you to do it. Because engineers are ultimately problem solvers. And that problem solving mindset can be applied to any organisation in any sector, anywhere in the world. And just because you pick the sciences and you do the engineering degree, you don't necessarily even need to have a a full career in engineering. You can, it brings a skill set that you can use to all sorts of other things. Don't overthink it. If you like math, science and problem solving, I thoroughly recommend starting a career in engineering. For anyone that's starting, that's already made that decision and is starting their careers in engineering, I think first of all, I'd give the same advice to a slightly older person is, and I always hated that where do you want to be in five years interview question. It's perhaps an odd thing to say as a strategy person, but I don't actually like planning too far ahead career wise. I prefer to see what new paths open up because you just never know what's the next door that's going to open and where that might lead you. There's such a vast range of opportunities of what you can do as an engineer. The pace of change in technology is changing faster than it's ever been. And the potential to make a huge a difference, really make a difference, is huge. So 
I just say keep doing things that challenge you and things that you believe in and you, and you can't really go too far wrong. I'd also say to the point I made a few bits through this is find people who give good advice and listen to it. It's only as I've got further through my career that I've really realised what a privilege it is to have always had good mentors, good bosses and good role models. So find those people. They exist in every organisation, right? So if you're not getting the opportunity, find the people that that mentor people, that develop people and surround yourself with them because it, it's got to rub off eventually. You'll find your moment. You'll get your serendipity moment. And, and also be that person to those that come after you. Be that family member, the, the teacher, the friend, the boss that encourages their daughter, their student, their female team members to choose and thrive in an engineering career. Because, yeah, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. So pay it forward. I love pay it forward. <laughs> well, no, that's that's really great advice. Thank you very much for sharing. And thank you very much for joining me today.